Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Art Papir, CEO of Visual DX, about lessons learned for dealing with infectious disease outbreaks. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Art Papir, CEO of Visual DX. Uh, welcome to the program. Jay, it's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for being here. Um, and to start things off, I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and Visual DX. Yeah, so I am a dermatologist that got involved in health information technology at the beginning of my career. My career is focused on how do we improve decisions in the exam room and at home with patients. And so I co-founded Visual DX, and it's a company that provides both decision support software for professionals as well as tools for patients to use at home. We have an app called ASA, A-Y-S-A, that helps people understand their skin disorders. It covers about 200 common skin disorders. You can download that app for free, either in Google Play or the iOS store. We also have a website for patients called SkinSight, focused on skin health. And then our professional tool, Visual DX, covers any chief complaint and actually crosses over to all of medicine. So there's 3,400 diagnoses covered in our professional tool. Excellent. Um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, emerging infectious diseases, um, which obviously have been a major topic over the last couple of years. Uh, I guess, I mean, forever, but really in the last couple of years with COVID. Um, wanted to know why are we dealing with sort of these new rare diseases like like COVID and then the reemergence of diseases like monkeypox and polio? Yeah, so, um, you know, infectious disease has been here since we've had humanity. Mm. And uh, many diseases um, are reemerging. And some think that this has a lot to do with climate change. As an example, we're seeing mosquitoes that transmit some infectious diseases like dengue fever, seeing the range of those mosquitoes move north with global warming. So you definitely can see um, climate change as one factor in changing the uh, geographic location of disease. Um, also changes in vaccination status is changing uh, where diseases are happening. We, you know, we um, thought we had eradicated polio from this country and the Gates Foundation was pretty close to eradicating polio from the globe. And here we are with uh, a case of polio in New York State and signs of it in the wastewater of a number of counties in New York State. And, you know, so vaccination status um, is pretty low in some of those counties. And it's really uh, quite a shame because it's such a um, disease with such morbidity and uh, causes such harm to people that we could just do be doing better. But so th there's uh, also the threat of bioterrorism that's been around for 20 or 30 years that involves infectious disease. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the vac vaccination status. So obviously uh, there was a lot of backlash to the COVID vaccine. Uh, do you see that kind of impacting other vaccinations where people are now deciding they don't want to get, you know, flu vaccinations or polio vaccinations or whatever? 
Well, flu is kind of in a separate category because, you know, it's that yearly vaccine that is proven to be really helpful in the elderly. Uh, but these childhood diseases like measles, where we're seeing, um, you know, parents not wanting their children to be uh, vaccinated for a deadly disease, it's it's really, you know, horrible. It, it, if we have to wait for there to be large outbreaks of measles or polio, that then scares people and then people start getting vaccinated again. So, you know, vaccination has been politicized and it's actually some of the safest medicine that we do and safer than a lot of the uh, oral medications that we give patients. And it's really just a shame because people uh, don't recall polio 50 years right. ago, you yeah. know, unless you're older. Uh, how have these outbreaks of disease impacted the healthcare system? Well, I, you know, we were living through uh, terrific shortages in healthcare right now, key people like nurses, you know, we've had a lot of resignations of nurses and healthcare professionals at the same time that we're having uh, increased demand in hospitals, not only because of the aging population and, and COVID, but as an example, uh, RSV virus in children is, right. is just flooding hospitals right now. So uh, we don't have the capacity that we need. And you know, here in uh, our healthcare system, uh, a lot of the limitation is they can't move patients out to nursing homes because there's no nursing home beds. And if there's no nursing home beds, then you don't have room in your hospital for the acute illness. So. We really are at a crisis in healthcare in terms of, you know, people capacity, having the right people available to do the work, and it's dangerous work, and also, um, you know, the capacity for patients in the hospital. And you mentioned, you know, the resignations of, you know, a lot of healthcare workers. Um, you know, how has this? I mean. The, I think the the rate of the burnout rate was already high previous to COVID, and now it's just sort of, you know, ramped it up even more. How is this sort of uh, is burnout affecting you know uh, healthcare professionals, and and what can we do about it? Well, you know, if you talk to healthcare professionals, uh, even before COVID and before the crisis that we're living through now, and uh, kind of the COVID age. Uh, and a tremendous burnout from documentation burden mm -hmm. from the electronic health record. And so many of my uh, friends and colleagues are taking their chart work home. You know, they have to complete their notes at home if they want to be able to see all their patients during the day. And uh, that's causing a lot of burnout, having to uh, deal with kind of the paperwork, the electronic paperwork burden of modern medicine and so we we need better better systems for sure so that we can return the electronic record to being all about quality patient care and less about billing and bureaucracy you know a lot of the uh, changes in the electronic record were made to support billing in the hospital how has um covid sort of impacted how we deal with infectious disease outbreaks? Are we, do we need to kind of rethink how we do that? Or, or do you feel like things are sort of uh, on the right track? 
Well, I think we all learned that um, healthcare has become politicized and we need to be able to be better storytellers and connect with the right emotions. You know, I think the, the government did a really bad job of marketing medicine during the outbreak, you know, um, and therefore we had a lot of people that are suspicious of, of medicine, suspicious of the healthcare system. And um, many patients have had poor interactions with their doctors and hospital systems, whether, you know, it's simple, as simple as getting the appointment where people have to wait an hour or two on the phone to get an appointment and they're shifted around. So it's, it's, it's not just on uh, patients that are, you know, vaccine deniers and all, all the things that are kind of um, difficult for us in healthcare to understand. Why would someone um, not be vaccinated against a life-threatening illness? Well, I think there are a lot, there's just a lot of um, dissatisfaction with healthcare delivery in general. And, you know, I think we need to set, hit, hit the reset button in healthcare uh, always have the patient first, obviously, and start really thinking about the patient's perspective and uh, not just what's good for the medical industrial complex. Yeah, and you mentioned the storytelling side of it. I mean, definitely like the messaging around masks was kind of uh, confusing at first. You know, I think when they were kind of saying, you know, don't use these, you know, don't use these masks. Let's save them for the medical professionals. And then people started, you know, kind of uh, using masks that weren't really effective. And it kind of was very jumbled. Yeah. Well, you know, they talk about the retrospectoscope, you know, that hindsight is twenty twenty. We can <laughs> yeah. look back and not really remember where we were at. But, you know, in March of 2020, we didn't know anything. And right. people, we didn't have enough masks and they were really sending out some mixed messages around masks because they wanted to make sure that all these healthcare professionals that were risking their lives and people working in hospitals and not just the doctors and nurses, but even the staff, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence that uh, people died because we didn't have enough masks for them and they weren't masked up correctly. And we can look back at that, but we don't really remember how little we knew and what a crisis we lived through. And so, you know, really what we need to do is invest in long-term preparedness and not just deal with the crisis at hand and forget about it. And, you know, I, at, with our company, we did a lot of work uh, following 9-11. Um, Anthrax was spread in the mail uh, 20 years ago as a, terrorist event and um, our message at the time to healthcare professionals and public health officials were it doesn't make sense just to prepare for anthrax because we don't know what the next crisis will be we have to prepare for everything and if we prepare for everything then we'll be prepared but if we just prepare for what just happened we won't be prepared for what's next and so uh, we're applying that thinking now to our work in public health preparedness. We just um, signed an agreement with the public health department in the state of Vermont where they've licensed our technology for every healthcare professional in the state and every hospital. And the strategy 
is not just to prepare for COVID and monkeypox. The strategy is to have every infectious disease at the fingertips of busy professionals and to have those infectious diseases and the information that's needed to diagnose and take care of these patients wrapped into a tool that's used on a daily basis for other, other reasons. And so this, the concept is really what we call dual use, where you, know, you have your target, which are these infectious diseases like monkeypox and um, you know, COVID-related diseases, but doctors are busy, they're, they're stressed out, and we have to think about how we give them tools that will be helpful day to day not just for the rare event like monkeypox or, you know, uh, a rare complication of COVID that they're not, not unaware of, but something they'll use every day. And so that's the strategy we're working on, uh, again, in public health that we proved 20 years ago. But, you know, the, the thing was we, we got all riled up about bioterrorism. The government mm-hmm. put for five years a lot of money into the system for bioterrorism, and then we did nothing. Right. And now we have a pandemic and we're focused on the pandemic. But we go from crisis to crisis with these lulls in between instead of amping up our game and staying amped up in public health. It's, yeah, is it just sort of, it's sort of reactive to whatever the latest crisis is, but it's not really prepared for whatever can come down the road. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not just healthcare. I mean, if you think about hurricanes and mm-hmm. you think about prepping for them, you have a hurricane, FEMA releases money, we rebuild, but did we do the investments in between to really uh, do the prevention, do the preparedness so that when disaster strikes, it's not as big a disaster. And we as a society don't seem willing to make those investments. Um. What are some other lessons learned from the last two and a half years, uh, you know, this of dealing with COVID and sort of the related uh, problems that came with it? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I think that yeah, <laughs> that is a really broad question. You can pick one or two. <laughs> you know, my, I, I guess I'm going to, I can't handle all the, dimensions of that beyond my expertise, but, you know, my expertise is really in health information technology and thinking about how do we have the right information at the right time in the right place. And when you look at COVID, what's really fascinating to healthcare professionals and, and, and to people is how varied the presentations of this disease are and the complications of COVID. It really is an amazing disease in the sense that, you know, you could have symptoms of headache and no respiratory problems. You could have GI complaints and no respiratory problems. You can have a horrible sore throat like I did with COVID. Um, And it's just all over the map. And so it does underscore, in my mind, the need to move away from looking for classic and prototypical presentations of disease because that's how we get in trouble. Like we get in trouble when we try to memorize the classic and then the patient presents differently. And this is true for monkeypox. I mean, monkeypox looks very, very different in this outbreak than it does from 20 years ago when monkeypox was spread to people from 
pet prairie dogs that right. received it from right pet rats that came from Gambia. And those patients that had skin lesions, uh, those skin lesions looked much different than a lot of the presentations of monkeypox that are happening now. And so this points to the need to have information systems that are continually updated and can be very, very responsive to what's going on in the moment. So we, we received funding uh, recently from the federal government to work on monkeypox. And as we're beginning this work, we're, we're seeing how varied these presentations are and really trying to nail this down so that in the future, uh, monkeypox, uh, as part of our artificial intelligence analysis, that we can recognize the different presentations of monkeypox. So, I mean, the big answer to your question is that things uh, with COVID changed so quickly, our knowledge base grew so quickly that information systems need to keep up with these outbreaks. And sort of along the same lines, how important is surveillance in preparing for the next outbreak? I mean, obviously, you know, infection prevention has been, you know, a big deal for a long time and, and sort of, you know, keeping an eye out for signs and symptoms. But, you know, I guess in, a, in the case of something like COVID, we didn't really know what to look for for a while, right? So how, how uh, you know, how can surveillance sort of uh, help, help us sort of for the next uh, thing that comes along? Great question. So we've been thinking about that in terms of when um, people search Google, it was initially thought that, you know, Google flu trends would be able to predict a flu outbreak mm -hmm. as it happened. And uh, it sounded great on paper, but, you know, somebody recently sent me a link to, to discuss why that was problematic and didn't go as well as they expected it to. But conceptually, when you think about whether it's patients or say professionals searching for information, if everybody was searching in the same system you and they were searching by symptoms, you would be able to figure out like when, uh, and there's an uptick from normal, from the baseline, an uptick of new symptoms across a city or across a state or across a country. And so it's our hope to be doing that Kind of work with Visual DX, you know. So Visual DX is this tool where you can search any symptoms, and we believe as we get to scale, and Visual DX is used widely, but I mean really to scale, where you know this is an app in every healthcare professional's pocket that um, we can detect the type of skin lesions they're searching, and be able to um, then see those changes from baseline and protect potentially ask the question, is there a new outbreak in process? Uh, do you feel that, I mean, obviously there's no way of knowing when or what the next outbreak will be, but do you feel like we're at least a little better prepared having gone through what we did the last couple of years? Oh, I think we have to be. I mean, um, we have to learn from some of these mistakes. Uh, you know, I don't think we problem solved, that's for sure. We have a long ways to go, um, but I do hope wh whatever side of the political aisle people are on, that we take science seriously and we get back to being reality-based and not emotionally-based. And 
we look back at the accomplishments we've had in uh, infectious disease in the last hundred years, you know, the eradication of smallpox. And I'm sure there are some flat earthers that don't believe that smallpox existed, you know, and, you know, maybe even show them a photo of a child that died from smallpox and they still don't believe it. But I, I, I'm hopeful that the majority of people, more than 50%, uh, believe in science. They believe that their smartphone works because of science and that um, we invest in having the right infrastructure so that we're prepared. So uh, hopefully that will be the big lesson learned, that the people that believe in rationality, analysis, thinking about science and the power of the antivirals, antibiotics, and vaccination, that we reassert um, kind of the success that we've had in medicine. And we make sure that people understand what it looks like if we went back a hundred years to having diseases like smallpox and polio ravage people. Yeah. Well, Dr. Pupier, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Oh, thanks so much. Wonderful to be with you. Have a great day. You too. That wraps up episode 69 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.